Hello and welcome to The Audit, a podcast dedicated to examining the contours of the U.S.-Pakistan relationship, bringing listeners insights from experts, decision makers, and stakeholders who have been involved in the long history of these bilateral ties. My name is Adam Weinstein, and I'm hosting today's episode with my colleague Sarah Khan. Thanks for that introduction, Adam. Throughout this season of The Audit, we've explored the economic and political ties between Pakistan and the United States, but we haven't spent that much time on the actual people. Now, large Pakistani diasporas exist in the Gulf, the UK, Australia, Canada, but also in America. In fact, in 2019, there were approximately half a million individuals of Pakistani descent living in the US in cities like New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and Houston. This is nearly twice as many as the number of Pakistanis in the States in the year 2000. This year, Fulbright scholarships were awarded to 189 Pakistanis to begin their studies and research in the United States starting in the fall. And since 2005, Pakistan has been the source of the largest contingent of Fulbright scholars anywhere in the world. But these exchanges are largely one way. Few foreigners, let alone Americans, visit Pakistan as tourists, and even fewer study here. This is something I've thought about for a long time. In 2018, in an op-ed for Dawn, a large daily English-language newspaper in Pakistan, I summarized the problem as follows. It should be a matter of utmost concern that the presence of a foreigner is still an oddity in old Lahore. Academic exchanges are next to nil, and the future diplomats of the West are more likely to study Urdu in Lucknow than Karachi. I sat down with Ambassador Ann Patterson, who you may remember from our second episode about the war on terror. She served as U.S. Ambassador to Pakistan from 2007 to 2010 and Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs from 2013 to 2017. Here's what she had to say about tourism and uh, people-to-people exchanges between Pakistan and the United States. Well, yeah, I always thought this was one of the great missed opportunities in Pakistan because we would travel around. And we would see these absolutely stunning in Lahore and and the museum in Peshawar. It was just jaw-droppingly interesting. It was closed while I was there. Uh, And you'd go into the museum and you'd see these after it was closed. And you'd see these priceless artifacts sort of leaning against the wall. Uh, But the security situation, of course, had made made tourism uh, very difficult. And to be honest, the fact that that Western tourists often like to have a drink at night also, I think, discouraged tourists. When we did surveys, that was also what people said. So there's there's just enormous opportunity there um, if if they would if they could take advantage of it. When I was there, uh, they appointed um, I can't remember who it was, but he was an Islamist as minister of tourism. And and if ever there was a signal that really was going to discourage Western tourists, it was it was appointing this gentleman as Minister of Tourism. Uh, so yes, huge potential. It's interesting. I've what I've always said to Pakistanis is also you know aside from getting a drink at night, you have to remember that people people from Europe and the U.S. go to Pakistan to see the roadside dabas, to see the mountains, to see the. Uh, the 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 Karhai shops in uh in, in Peshawar on University Road to see the fort in Lahore. They don't necessarily want to stay in a fortified Marriott hotel. They don't necessarily want to go to a bougie uh you know kind of Italian continental fusion restaurant in Lahore. Uh, we could do that 
in the United States, or we could simply go to Italy to do to do things like that. Um, and so they have to lean into what where their competitive advantage really is. Or we would sit out in this restaurant overlooking the Banchahi Mosque in, in, in Lahore, and it was, you know, it was one of the most jaw-dropping experiences of my, my life. And, and that's exactly what tourists want to do. They, when I was there, fortunately, I've been to the Khyber Pass before in a previous job, but it was off limits, you know, and that's a, that's a, that's a tourist destination that's, that's, that's fascinating. And, and they need to start, as you as you say, it's not that they want to, you know, go to a French restaurant. They want to see all these things that, that are frankly very unique to Pakistan. So I, I found that a fascinating element of my tour there. And I hope more Americans will have the opportunity to see that. But there are still basic barriers that prevent more Americans and other foreigners from seeing Pakistan for themselves. Adam spoke to Masaddiq Zulkarnain, who you may remember from the audit's first episode on trade. He is the chairman and CEO of Interloop Limited and Interloop Holdings, which is the largest listed textile company on the Pakistan Stock Exchange by market capitalization. Obviously, he travels throughout the region and world, so we had a very frank discussion about things that get in the way of travel to Pakistan, some of them which are easily fixable. Over the past two decades, Unfortunately, the conditions in Pakistan have been not very conducive uh, for the for the the I would say the customers or the buyers in the West to travel to Pakistan and uh, uh, you see find uh, an atmosphere where they can uh, you see put up offices uh, have a, have a have a comfortable I would say stay or even travel. Look at look at. Uh, the travel situation in Pakistan, we don't have any direct flights between, uh, for that matter, U.S. and Pakistan. You have to go through uh, Middle East or Europe to travel to Pakistan. Apparently, it, it is not a problem. But for me, it's a big problem because uh, uh, the time has become very important for people. And if you waste two days to reach a destination and in the end, you have just two suppliers over there, you'll rather skip and go directly to Dhaka. And where there are uh, uh, two dozen suppliers, which you can see, and uh, so it, uh, also the situation in in the journal, um, uh, Dhaka is not as as modern as Lahore or or maybe Karachi or something. But for for a Westerner who wants to, and I I might sound you see way off from what happens in Pakistan is, but you see we have to understand that a and a person coming from um, from Germany or UK. He, he wants to sit in the evening, have a glass of beer, or somebody coming from, from U.S. wants to, have, at dinner, wants to have a glass of wine or something like that. Uh, uh, in Pakistan, we have, you see, created a situation where uh, the Westerners, they, they, they don't feel very, very comfortable. They feel all the time uh, that we, it's, it's, a, it's a very different culture. Although otherwise, we Pakistani people are very, very, you see, welcoming, very hospitable, and they love it here. But I think we have to create this situation where they can come, travel easily, in and out. Um, I, I'll, I'll give you another example. I, and I keep giving this example again and again. Let's suppose there is a customer who, who starts from Frankfurt or London, and he wants to come to Lahore or Karachi. So he, he or she will go to Middle East and then come to here. Now, next, her, his or her next stop is Bangalore. 
they can't fly out of lahore to bangalore they have to go back to somewhere in middle east and then go to bangalore wasting so much of time that's not the case with sri lanka india and bangladesh you can directly travel between those countries there's no issue uh, so i think th- these non trade barriers are also creating problems for for for, for our business to grow it's a policy failure that there's not at least a weekly direct flight a pia flight from from new york to pakistan that's a policy failure uh regardless of whether it would be profitable or not uh it it should be seen as an investment in connectivity uh but you know when you arrive in pakistan basic logistics become difficult or have to be outsourced to a pakistani i mean why when you land in the airport in islamabad in the capital at night you can't even exchange money so now you're going out into the city with if you haven't had the foresight to exchange money beforehand you're going out into a cash society with no money and you know oftentimes it takes eight atm machines I, this is no exaggeration eight atm machines uh before one will work uh with a foreign or a local card and or sometimes I'll say that and um to a Pakistani in Islamabad and they'll chuckle well oh you should have gone to this particular bank well how how would i know that as a foreigner i mean that's absolutely ridiculous if it, there should be centers in every major pakistani city like lahore islamabad karachi that you can enter if you have a foreign passport and they open they're open 24 hours and they will help you book a hotel change a hotel uh find a a, a ride between cities uh and uh you exchange money or or manage whatever you need to manage and i'm i'm personally not a high maintenance traveler i'm per, I'm, i'm content to use the daiwu bus but a potential investor from houston or from berlin might not be so open minded about that and what what happens is that when foreigners go to pakistan whether as tourists or as investors they essentially have um a, a pakistani who is acting as the liaison and handling their every need uh, but the truth is that american or europeans and especially americans really don't like to have to go through someone constantly and it's actually it can be a bit um uh suffocating and so creating the conditions where someone uh can can land in islamabad or or lahore or karachi and easily <laughs> deal with the logistics of 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 meetings without having to use a local liaison for every little thing uh is something that the pakistani government really should be investing in um and of course the connectivity of flights um I, but I, i'll yeah. i'll get off yeah. my No no I, i i no 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 i think i completely agree with you it's not only it's not not only that it's suffocating and uh, people don't like to go through others it's it's uh, all the time it it's also time consuming people people don't want to spend that much of time just to you see uh, change their uh, currency or to find a good hotel or find a good transport uh, you're absolutely right uh, so these problems are there which which um there are uh, i there there is there are about 60 flights between dhaka and chittagong every day and if you have to go from islamabad to karachi there could be five six flights and two of them are cancelled every day one more thing you see i think uh, the, the previous government has advertised it a lot and even the government before that uh, i think they introduced uh, a, a business visa on arrival which is very good 
but what we don't realize in pakistan is that it's a, it's a very good gesture and it's a good thing to do but many of the corporations particularly in us i know they don't allow their their employees to travel unless their travel arrangements are already pre completed so they won't uh, even if the business visas are uh, uh, available uh, on arrival they won't let people go unless they have a visa uh, arranged in us before they leave uh, it's just because they don't want any any chance of any mishap Yeah. You also have to build trust to have a business visa on arrival yeah, or a tourist absolutely. visa on arrival. And absolutely. I've received multiple Pakistani visas. The uh, diplomats and staff at the embassy and the consulate have been nothing but helpful. I'm grateful for all the help they have provided. Um, I'm someone who loves to travel in Pakistan. There is no way that I would trust a visa on arrival. There is no way I would get on a flight from from Dubai Absolutely. or Doha Absolutely. without a visa in hand and land in Pakistan and subject myself to what might become a convoluted uh uh process um yes. they have to build trust so that that's what i was pointing out that since you i think you have had good experience but somebody who applies for the first time although they now have a e visa facility he or she might have to wait 5 6 7 days before you see a visa issued in us 5 6 7 days in pakistan maybe it's 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 very very swift but i think 5 6 7 days in us nobody has the time to do that so musarik mentioned that other places for example sri lanka do better with tourists because they have more infrastructure to cater to them the thing with pakistan is not only that it lacks infrastructure for example there's certain components to the airport that that are missing uh but that it has the wrong kind of infrastructure for outside visitors take lodging for example in a lot of pakistani cities you either have really expensive hotels or sort of subpar guest houses now airbnb has made up for this a little bit but not enough and so you don't have the mid tier kind of hotel that business people or even backpackers and certainly tourists might want that's an interesting train of thought um and i guess for me it then begs the question is it really the lack of infrastructure that prohibits tourists from coming to the country or is it more of a kind of from a development perspective is it a lack of demand on the tourist side that is prohibiting the infrastructure from being developed there yeah, i think it's a bit of both one the visa process is confusing and sometimes unpredictable two it's difficult to plan your trip ahead of time because airline websites hotel websites uh even public transportation is very difficult to book in advance if you don't already understand how pakistan works or if you don't have a, a local identification sometimes you can't even book these tickets but i think what the pakistani government and probably a few business people in the private sector need to do is have faith in pakistan and bet on pakistan and by the way i have faith that if pakistan makes it easier for tourists to come they will come i believe that myself uh but you have to facilitate their ability to get to pakistan in the first place once they're able to get to pakistan the local economy will adapt to them because people want to make money i think a lot of what you've identified here adam are gaps on the pakistan end that definitely need to be addressed but this is a bilateral relationship and i wonder whether you think that the us could do more in terms of enabling tourism and exchange 
Neither Islamabad nor Washington has done a particularly good job at facilitating tourism or exchanges from the United States to Pakistan. U.S. State Department travel advisories urge Americans to reconsider travel plans and paint Pakistan with a broad brush. For those Americans who ignore their government's advice and go anyway, it can be confusing exactly where they can and cannot go in Pakistan. And you, men- you mentioned not being able to go to the Khyber Pass, and it- it's interesting because you know, if you went to Peshawar and you were a tourist roaming about, you wouldn't necessarily know if you needed permission to go to the border or to venture into Baluchistan. And, you know, some friendly Pakistanis might say, hey, come with us to here or there. And you might actually be uh, in hot water. And I think there is a regulatory problem where, you know, uh, that's a little bit unique to Pakistan in which there's these restricted areas that people in the know know about. But you don't necessarily know if you're just a tourist roaming about. Yeah, we had a couple of those while I was there that people basically wandered, as you say, onto a sensitive area, um, really not knowing where they were. And some of these sensitive areas were, were, were pretty large, but they can they should be able to manage that. And, and the other place that was considered extremely dangerous that I thought was fascinating was Quetta. And and in, because Baluchistan, as you know, has had this low-grade insurgency for years, and the Taliban was either in Quetta or it wasn't, you know, it was so. But it was also a very interesting city. Um, so I so I, I do hope they get a handle on this and and open up opportunities for for American and 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 frankly tourists that are willing to spend um, a lot of money. Uh, to visit these sites. It would, could really uh, juice the economy, I think. I, I certainly think if Pakistan put together tour packages, they could charge thousands of dollars if they just took care of all the details. Uh, last question, and I want to talk about something that's within the U.S. control so far as tourism, and actually within the State Department's control, I think. There, there's two countries I, I, I've traveled extensively in, uh, well outside perhaps the typical places that people go, and that's Pakistan and Mexico. Uh, But if I go to, uh, and and by the way, both countries have significant uh, security issues. And at this point, I'd say the United States has significant security issues. But uh, that's another conversation for another day. But in the case of Mexico, if I go to the State Department's website uh, and I look for travel advisories, what I will get is state-by-state travel advisories. In fact, Sometimes the travel advisories will be specific to a state. So, for example, I might be able to go to Mexico City and see that the travel advisory is relatively uh, safe um, and take a two-hour road trip to go see the monarch butterflies migrate to Michoacan. And I'll go look at Michoacan and they'll say, you know, exercise increased caution, but uh, and don't travel to the west of the state where uh, where the where there is cartel activity. And I'll know, well, well, look, the butterfly preserves are in the east and everything's fine there. And it really is city by city, state by state in Mexico. And yet when I look at travel advisories for Pakistan, there's a little bit of specificity. They'll say, don't go to the former Fatah. But all in all, the entire country basically gets grouped into one bucket, a deeply concerning travel advisory that makes it look like, you know, you're, you're jumping into a combat zone. Um, when in reality, I have found that in Lahore or Islamabad, I feel safer than many places in the United States. Absolutely. Let me make a sort of specific and then a broader observation. These are called carve-outs. 
And absolutely, I think we should have carve-outs not only for Pakistan, but also for many other countries in the Islamic world. Uh, and and I made that point, frankly, uh, to the to the incoming ambassador, uh, that that would be highly desirable. The horror Islamabad business uh, business areas in Karachi. This episode is focused on tourism in Pakistan, but it is also worth noting that many barriers also prevent Pakistanis from visiting the U.S., even if the overall numbers are lopsided. While Pakistanis may have greater clarity and freedom to move about the United States once they arrive, just getting here is difficult. I think this is something that many Pakistanis who have studied or worked in the U.S. experience regularly. The messaging feels very mixed. Cultural exchange is a huge part of programs like the Fulbright, and students are encouraged to assimilate into U.S. culture, but then seem equally expected to abandon those connections to the people and the places that they engage with as soon as their programs are over. And it isn't just getting there that's tough, honestly. When I was a student in the U.S., I remember the very real paranoia that I and most of my Pakistani friends experienced while we were there. There was a real fear that any small misstep would send you back home and you wouldn't be able to get back to school or work for months. Thanks for sharing that experience, Sarah. And you know what? Arriving back through customs can even be a bit uh, unfriendly for me, and I'm a U.S. citizen, so I can't imagine what it's like for a visitor. I do hope things will change with time and there will be an increase in exchanges. It may start with a trickle and those who are most interested in visiting our respective countries, but I do believe over time this will increase. Uh, because it's in the interest of both countries to limit the paranoia that has filtered into our respective visa systems just a little and apply some common sense to the process to encourage exchanges. In the long term, it will help us understand each other. For this final episode of this season of The Audit, I am Adam Weinstein. And I'm Sarah Khan. If you have feedback and thoughts on this episode, please do share them on social media or at info at as always, we thank all the guests who appeared on this episode and hope you have benefited from their insights and experiences. Thanks for listening. Season 1 of The Audit was produced by the Badlab Center for Regional and Global Connectivity. Episodes featuring Adam Weinstein were produced in collaboration with the Quincy Institute. This season, episodes were hosted by Adam Weinstein, Maryam Mirza, Zishan Salahuddin, Aisha Barney, and Sarah Khan. Editing and production by Sarah Khan. Additional production and research assistance from Maryam Mirza, Kashif Nadeem, and Sami Noor. Executive production by Shahab Siddiqui and Zishan Salahuddin. Music by Emmett Fenn and Vibe Mountain. This season of The Audit was made possible with a generous grant from the Holling Center for International Dialogue.